Before we dig in, I also um, want to really encourage all of us, every campus, Adrian, Garden City, Lee Summit, everybody, to be a part of the celebration on the 4th of December. That's just a week and a half away, all right? But we're gonna gather right here in this actual room. It's one of the times when all the campuses get to come together. And so I, I don't want you to miss it. It's just a special time. We're gonna celebrate the year. Um, there's, there's great food. This year, we're gonna actually worship together more than we really ever have before at, at this event. And so I'm just telling you, the, the, the bands are gonna bring it. it. It's gonna be, I think, just a great night of celebration together. But for me, you know how from time to time I remind you that on any given gathering, it could be the gathering for someone in Heart of Life who has been praying like sometimes maybe even years for someone that they care about to actually just give it one shot to come together and with the church and just give it one shot. Well, I'm telling you that for me, there is a, a relationship that I have been praying for, been working on, I guess you would call it, desiring to know where this person is with, in terms of their heart toward God and all that to say, she has agreed to be here on the 4th of December together with us. And so I'm excited about that night because I want her to experience a people who know Jesus, a people who celebrate Jesus, a people who will love like Jesus. I'm just telling you that I've been praying for an opportunity for her to give it a shot. And on December the 4th, she's gonna give it a shot. I want you to be here because I know who you are. On that night, we're praying that God will do some really cool stuff among his people. Sign up today, all right? There are tables at the back even when you go today, and they'll give you more info when you leave. But even if you don't have the funds to be able to pay for it, you know, there's a meal that's involved, just sign up today. Because at least that enables us to be able to prepare for how many are going to be here. So, 2 Timothy, let's dig in. We've heard the consistent message from 2 Timothy. Stay on mission. Stay on mission. In fact, I want you to stay on mission, Paul says, with unashamed courage. You have an outline in your worship guide that you got today. I encourage you to take a few notes, fill in a few blanks to help us remember what we're talking about today. Stay on mission with unashamed courage. Unashamed courage to speak of Christ, unashamed courage even when you have to suffer for the gospel. So just like we've already been prayed for here today, you got to stand on God's word and stay away from stupid arguments. That's what Paul said. Stand on God's word and stay away from stupid arguments. Stay fit, the focus of a soldier, the integrity of an athlete, the tenacity of a farmer. And why would we do this? Because we serve a risen Savior. We, we present an unstoppable gospel. 
We have an eternal purpose of getting to share this good news with the world. And we've got a faithful promise that our Jesus will always be with us. So Paul just told us at the end of chapter 2. When we face opponents, which means we will. He says, you are to give them the truth in gentleness. And the reason you give them the truth in gentleness is in the hope that their heart will change, that God will cause their heart to change, that they will turn to him. Today we turn the chapter to chapter 3, and there's a big but. There are lots of big buts in Scripture, and today we get one of those. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, here's how it reads. But, be gentle, teach the truth with gentleness in the hopes that people's heart will change. But, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. There will be terrible times in the last days. In other words, Timothy, not everybody's heart's going to change. There's going to be opposition. You, you do it gently in hopes that they will, but, but they're not going to. It, there are going to be terrible times in the last days. Many will continue to oppose God. Now, the last days, the last days in Scripture are described as the time period between when Jesus comes the first time that's what we're about to celebrate here in a month. Jesus', Jesus birth, he comes, he goes to the cross, he, he rises again, he goes to prepare a place for us, and one day, he's coming back. And the time period between his first arrival and his second arrival are the last days. That's usually how scripture describes what these days are. Now remember, Paul's talking to people who are suffering for their faith. They're, they're going through some real hardship simply because they're lining up with Jesus, not because they're doing something illegal in the sense of hurting people. Or they're just simply lining up with Jesus. They're suffering for their faith. And his message is, the struggle is worth it. The struggle is worth it. But before it gets perfect, which it will, it's going to get worse. So, here's a description of what worse looks like. Verse 2. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents. That's an interesting one in the middle of the list, isn't it? <clears throat> ungrateful, unholy, without love. This is actually a particular phrase that refers to like how families should love each other, how relationships where, where certainly a husband should love his wife or parents should love their kids. Families should love each other. This is saying, but they won't. They won't. Unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not lovers of the good. Treacherous, it means to betray. 
rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Woo, that's a list. I'm going to sum it up with one phrase. He says, Timothy, here's your warning. Here's your warning. Some people will be lovers of themselves. We're just going to take the first phrase that I think really describes that, that whole ugly list. Now, most people know there's a place in the Bible where, where it talks about you, you are to, to, to love others as yourself. And so we quickly jump on that phrase, to, to love ourselves means what? It, it is a question of do you know that you are valuable to God? So know that other people are valuable to God, know that you are valuable to God. But that's not what this phrase means. The way he uses it in this context, it is, it is an attitude and it is a lifestyle that says, I'm more valuable than anybody else, including God. I'm more valuable than anybody else. So it's to think of yourself more highly than others. It's to live for yourself, to, to treat others with disrespect. Therefore, you're greedy. You, you just want money for yourself. You're prideful. There, there's no self-control. You, you're not even loving family. You see, the message of Scripture is people left to themselves, people apart from God, don't do the right thing. Our bent is to sin. People left to themselves, people apart from God, we do not do the right things. Our bent is to self. So his message is, as bad as you think it is right now, and Timothy, I know it's pretty bad. You guys are going through some stuff, tough stuff, and I think we would go, you, you, you look at the news, you, you read the headlines, I mean, you, you see it day after day, and we go, as bad as this is, and he's like, yeah, I told you. Because people will be more brutal, they will be more selfish, they will be more ungrateful. Let's keep going. A second warning, verse 5. They will have a form of godliness, but denying its power. This one's really scary to me. People who have a form of godliness, but denying its power. Here's the warning. Some people will be religious frauds. They will be religious frauds. There's a story that Jesus tells in one place in the Bible where he describes that sometimes people will look like, he, just, he calls them whitewashed tombs. And it's this imagery of a beautiful white stone, right? It reflects the sunlight, but he says inside that grave, it's dead men's bones. And he's just drawing a contrast between something that looks beautiful on the outside, but it's actually something else on the inside. What he's talking about here is this is not really their character, but their attitude toward God appears to be godly. They just appear to love God, a form of godliness. What might that look like? It probably means that they show up for church. It probably means they're even part of a Bible study. It means they're willing to be baptized. They're spiritual talk. They, they know how to say a prayer. They know how to serve sometimes. 
It was Charles Spurgeon who said it this way. He said, there may be a savor of religion about a man's conversation, and yet it may be a borrowed flavor like hot sauce to disguise the staleness of the food. I like that because I like hot sauce. He says, you know how you put hot sauce on something sometimes and when you taste it, you go, oh, that's good. But the reality is it's not the food that tastes that good, it's the hot sauce that tastes that good. It's covering, it's covering. They don't really know the power of God. They look very religious, they're in church, they say prayers, they might even give some of their, of their finances, but, but they don't know the power of God. The power of God, we learn from Ephesians, it is the Holy Spirit who lives within us, it is his power that is at work. They don't know the transforming power of the Spirit of God. It is a religion without relationship. Be warned, he says. In the last days, there will be religious frauds. Let's keep going. Isn't this encouraging? Let's keep going. Verse 6. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Here's the third warning, Timothy. Some people will be predators of the weak. They will be predators of the weak. He says they will worm their way in. It's an interesting phrase that in a lot of places is used to describe the setting of the sun. Now, if you ever watch the setting of the sun, how, how does that happen? It happens what appears to be slowly, right? Almost imperceivable, right? It's happening slowly, and yet when you look at it, and then you look away, and then you look back, you're like, something's really happening here, but it's moving so slow when you just stare at it that you can't tell. He says, that's how they will be. They, they are manipulative. I mean, they, 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 are, they are smart in how they do this. Now, please understand the target here, the point is not that they're weak because they're women. The point is they are weak because of their sin. Paul's just talking about a particular group, that, what was happening there in Ephesus where apparently there is a group of women who are loaded with, with a sin issue. They're, they're, they, they're not... They're not fighting against even the, the desires that, that they know to be wrong. Unconfessed sin affects our ability to hear the heart of God. Unconfessed sin affects our ability to sense what God is saying and how he's directing. A sin affects our heart. Apparently that's what was going on with these women so here they come, people who are slithering their way into their lives. They, and the women have an intellectual curiosity, but they have no moral discipline. Man, I read this stuff, my heart, my heart breaks for the vulnerable in our world upon whom the predators prey. 
much of the ministry that, that we get to be a part of at Heart of Life, it, it is based in this fact that there are predators who prey upon the weak. Paul would say, I told you. I told you. This is what it will be like. And then there's one more warning. One more warning. Let's go to verse 8. Verse 8. Just as Jans and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers will oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected. So here's the fourth warning. He says some people will be opposed to the truth. Always going to be the case. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. They're going to be opposed to the truth. Now here's what's interesting. When Paul brings up these two names, Jens and Jambres, he's referencing a story that tradition tells us, other writings tell us, they are Pharaoh's sorcerers, magicians, if you will, who opposed Moses when God sent Moses to Pharaoh in Egypt in order to lead God's people out of slavery. You ever remember that story? If you never heard that story, you need to read the book of Exodus. It's this picture of God's people enslaved in Egypt. God sends Moses. He says, you're going to be the one I'm going to use to get them out. Well, when you read that story in Exodus chapter 7, Exodus chapter 8, when, when Moses and Aaron first show up, one of the first things that God gives them in terms of the evidence that they are sent is they throw their staves, their, their, their staves on the ground. And do you remember what happened to the staves? What did they become? Snakes. But the Bible also says that Pharaoh's magicians, Pharaoh's sorcerers matched the miracle. They also threw their staves on the ground and they became, see, some people really don't understand there is supernatural power in the darkness. There is supernatural power in the darkness. But that supernatural power does not lead people to life. It leads people to death. But it's real. And so stabs on the ground turn to snakes. The magicians match it. Same thing. Then comes the first plague. The first plague that, that, that God brings is that the Nile River turns to blood. Guess what? Magicians match it. The second plague is frogs. The magicians match it. And at this point, we're going, man, pretty good. Three for three, right? Three for three. I mean, they're, they're able to, to keep up until we get to the fourth miracle or the third plague, if you will, which, which is when the dust of the earth turns to gnats and it just swarms the people. How horrible would that be? You know how it is when you got like one gnat that's bugging you? You know what I'm talking about? You're trying to do something. You're trying to read. You're trying to whatever. And you got one gnat that is buzzing around your head. And you can't get that crazy thing to go away. Imagine a plague where the dust of the ground becomes just an atmosphere 
solid gnats that are, you can't even hardly breathe for, for what's going on around you. But the biggest news is that the magicians could not produce it. The sorcerers could not match it. And sure enough, in the rest of the story in Exodus, there's no more commentary about the sorcerers. There's no more commentary about Pharaoh's magicians. They were outed for all to see what they really were not. The point is, there will continue to be people who oppose truth. They've been doing it since Moses. They're going to continue to do it for you, Timothy. In the last days, as the church continues to be the church, you're going to see people who are opposed to the truth. And so with such good news, like what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, can we first of all, before I give you the blanks here, can we first of all just recognize that a couple of thousand years ago, our God called it and said, this is what it will be, which ought to at least bring some comfort to your heart in this moment of going, okay, he has not lost control. This is not a shock to the system of God. The world has not getting, gotten so bad that he doesn't know how to handle. He, he knows exactly what it will be. He knew exactly how it would unfold. So what's our part in this? Well, how are we supposed to deal with it? Here's what he tells the church at Ephesus and therefore what he speaks to us. We gotta go back to verse five to get the first piece of instruction. Have nothing to do with such people. Have nothing to do with such people. Here's the word. He says, here's what I want you to remember, avoid them. Avoid such people. You say, well, that's not a problem, man. (laughs) That's not a problem. Actually, sometimes it is a problem. You understand that the Bible's message is not for Jesus followers to avoid all sinful people. That's not the message. The message for Jesus followers is not that we build our safe little bubble and avoid all sinful people in the world. That's not the message. That's not our mission. Jesus models something very different. He he models a heart that, that is willing to come alongside people who have experienced brokenness, people who have experienced the the worst of sin, people who need a savior. That's how we're here. The difference in what we're talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is that these people look like on the outside that they're on the inside, but they're not really on the inside And Paul says, therefore, they need to be on the outside. In other words, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. Isn't that interesting? That the Bible doesn't call us 
to disengage from a sinful world on the outside who needs to hear about a Savior whose sacrifice is bigger than any sin in our lives. But he does call us to separate from people who are acting like they're on the inside, but the evidence is that they're not. And they're hurting people. They're deceiving people, but doing it under the name of godly. He says, don't have anything to do with them. It's tricky, though, because they have, they have favorite Bible verses. They have favorite Bible verses, and sometimes they know more Bible verses than you do. He says, no, you got to see. you got to see the deception that is there, and when you recognize that deception, you avoid. But I think the main lesson that we walk away from here is found in verse 9. And this is how verse 9 reads. They will not get very far. Because as is the case of those men, the two that he named, their folly will be clear to everyone. Here's what I want you to remember. Sins do not remain hidden. Sins do not remain hidden. Because I think this is our, our struggle when we read a text like the one we read today. It's not, it's not just enough that people are selfish and they hurt people. And it's not just enough that Predators will go after those who are vulnerable and those who are weak. But what feels even worse is the fact that it seems like in so many cases, they're getting away with it. They're getting away with it. They hurt people, and it seems like they get away with it. They prey on, on people who, who are weak and vulnerable, and it looks like they get away with it. And I think that is part of the powerful message that Paul is conveying to Timothy and Ephesus and you and me and heart of life. No, they're not. They're not getting away with it. Now, here's what's interesting. The two names that Paul Names in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you go back and read Exodus, you will not find their names. They're simply referred to as the magicians. They're simply referred to as Pharaoh's sorcerers. You will not find their two names in the book of Exodus. In fact, you won't find those two names anywhere else in the Bible. Nowhere else do those two names appear until, get this, right, M millennia later, here's Paul. 
Here's Paul sitting down to write a letter to Timothy and under the the powerful inspiration of the Spirit of God, all of a sudden he does some name dropping on two dudes who for thousands of years literally have, have seemed to be nameless, but they opposed God. And the message is everything, everything someday will be made plain for all to see. Everything someday will be made plain for all to see. It is the great allure of sin and temptation. It's the allure that it can happen behind the scenes. It's the, the allure that, that it can happen in, in, in anonymity, right? I mean, and come on, we, we know a, a little bit of this. I mean, maybe like if you were person to person with somebody, you, you wouldn't just, let, let's say even at a store or something, you wouldn't just like cut them off. You know what I mean? You wouldn't just blatantly like just cut them off when you know it's, it's not your turn, but even inside a vehicle, an attitude will kind of change. You're like, floor it. Cut them off. Isn't that funny? Not really. I'm just saying, isn't it interesting in person versus even behind a windshield? Maybe you wouldn't actually say something mean to someone if you were face-to-face with them, but put you behind a computer screen Suddenly, your words are different. Something maybe you wouldn't do in the public eye, but when no eyes are on you. Who you are in the dark is who you really are. Who you are in the dark is who you really are. And the message is eventually, it is plain for all to see. It it may not be today. It may not be seen tomorrow. It may not be seen even 100 years from now, but eventually it comes out. It always comes out. Everything will someday be made plain for all to see. God will one day right all wrongs. Sins do not remain hidden. The wheels of justice may seem like they move slow, but but they're sure. And the hope that we hold on to is that our God in his goodness and his justice, he will one day right all wrongs. And if we do not believe such, if we do not live with such conviction, what will happen is we will either end up being crushed by the pressure of, of the pain, of the, of, the, of the suffering that we experience, or from the inside out, our life will be corroded because of unforgiveness and anger So what's my task? My task is to practice forgiveness. I practice forgiveness even while I'm waiting for justice to be. And I leave it to God to execute the timing 
Remember Noah's story? Most of the people heard of Noah. Noah and the ark built a big boat. God sent a flood. Did you know, though, that when God gave word, hey, build the ark, going to be a flood, do you know how long it was before the first drop of rain fell? 100 years. 100 years. We usually leave that part of the story out when we're, when we're telling the story, right? Would you ever really thought about it? Noah's Ark's one of those, like, we tell our kids that story before they go to bed. You know what I'm saying? It's like a destroy the earth with the flood. Just kind of an interesting deal. But I'm saying 100 years. 100 years. The biblical authors comment on that. And they actually talk about how throughout human history, mankind has often misinterpreted the gap. Peter is consistent with what Paul is saying. And this is the way that Peter describes it in 2 Peter chapter 3. This, this is what he says, don't forget this one thing. Dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Here's the point. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He says, you know, just like in the days of Noah, and they all thought that they were safe because God said he was going to do something, and then there was this gigantic time lapse between when it actually happened. He said, come on, don't be deceived. Don't do that today where you fall into a complacency when it, when it comes to your own sinful choices because you haven't yet experienced the consequences of those things, the unveiling of those things. Jesus has been gone for a while, right? So, so maybe he's not really coming back. And Peter's shouting, no, no. Here's what you need to realize. Don't think of God's patience as a sign of his absence. It's actually a sign of his mercy. Don't, don't think of God's patience, the time gap. Don't, don't think this means that God is, is not present. Don't think that he's not acting, but, but he, is, he, he is a heart of mercy. He wants something greater for people than what they deserve. His heart is for people getting not only what we don't deserve, but what we can't even earn. And God's heart, he says, is that none should perish. God's heart is that everyone would turn to him. Everyone. What a beautiful word. That's you. That's me. That's us. That's them. That's the oppressed. That's the oppressor. And all would see this truth. One day everything's going to come out in the end. And we all so desperately need God's saving grace. So sometimes you look at the world around you and you feel like, why even, why even fight this? You see the selfishness and the heartache and the brokenness and you're like, why even try The reminder that Paul brings 
is because what you're experiencing is not because God is absent. It's because he is patient as you carry out the mission of taking an unstoppable gospel to everyone around you. I want to challenge you to a little application this week. It's an application to lift up the mirror. And what I mean by that is, instead of us simply walking out of here, reading the ugly list and go, yeah, we we know people like that. How about instead we, we hold up the mirror And maybe this week, just once a day, I challenge you to read the text that we read today. Read it. Especially verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Right? Those are the ones with the big list of ugly stuff. I challenge you to read it, asking the question, what is it that really jumps out to you? What are you seeing coming back? And one of the possible routes is that when you you hold up that mirror and and you're reading it, there may be some of those words where you you read the word uh, abuse or you read the word slander or you're reading selfishness and you're going, yes, that's what I'm feeling right now. This is what so-and-so is doing to me. This is what's happening at work. This is what's happening at school. This is what's happening in my life. This person is doing exactly this very thing. This is how I'm feeling hurt. And if that's the case, the challenge today is that we would learn to leave it to Jesus. He is not oblivious to what's happening to you. And you are not alone in that suffering. So what do I do? I say, Jesus, I'm asking you to give me power by your spirit to forgive and I'm going to trust you that in your time justice will be served I'm not taking vengeance because you know how to do that much better than me so for now will you help me to forgive and I'm trusting this to your timing knowing that in the end all things will be known now quick word, tomorrow morning when you get up and read it again, you're probably going to have to ask him again. And and the next morning when you read it again, you're probably going to ask him again. That's a part of how forgive. God, will you continue to shape my heart to forgive? God, continue to help me to leave this to you. But there's another part of holding up the mirror. And the idea in the book of James, we read about how when, when God's kids read the scriptures, it's, it's like holding up a mirror to our lives. And he's saying, isn't it true that sometimes people, they, they look into the mirror and the mirror shows us some things that need to be affected, right? We get up in the morning and we look in the mirror and we go, oh, oh, by the way, for the first time in a long time in my life, I own a comb. You know that? I own a comb. I haven't owned a comb in a long, long time. When I get up in the morning now, sometimes I need a comb. Sometimes it's a whole lot worse than that. 
right? It's the point. You look in the mirror and you see what is. He says, but here's the goofy thing. People walk away from the mirror and they forget what they look like. They forget what they just saw. They forget what, the, what was just revealed. And he says, don't you do that. And so the challenge is this week when you read those verses, two, three, four, five, six, you look into the mirror and let it not only be, hey, who's doing this toward me, but God, will you show me anything in my life that looks like this? And I want it changed. On a week where we're talking about Thanksgiving, I find it interesting that one of the words in the list was, was ungrateful. Just ungrateful. And we go, no, we're grateful. But I'm reminding you that there are so many people in our culture, when you elevate yourself above others, you will suddenly feel as though you deserve everything you receive. And therefore, there is no need for gratitude because I deserve it. And when you begin to view life that way, you, you really are opposed to the idea of grace because grace denotes goodness that you receive that's undeserved and you think you deserve everything that you get. And I'm saying if we're not careful, we really do become a people that say on the outside that we are grateful and we will sing our songs about gratefulness. There is an appearance of godliness. But on the inside, we secretly believe we deserve everything that we get, and therefore, we will take what we are not getting. It's like, God, I want to hold up the mirror, and will you show me? And when I see it, I want to leave it with Jesus, which means I want to confess that to him, and I want to ask him to change my heart, and I want to ask him to help me to be grateful. God, will you help me to see gratitude in my life? Will you help me to recognize your blessing, to see your grace? Don't mistake God's patience toward you as an excuse for more sin. Don't excuse God's, don't mistake God's patience with you as an excuse for more sin. It just means by God's grace, there's still time for you to turn to Jesus. quite a passage next week I promise it gets a little better but I'm not sure there's a greater word for us at a culture right now we look at its ugliness and it's really easy for us just to bow out to believe it doesn't matter what we do to even question whether or not God really cares the answer today is loud and clear. Yes, he does. In fact, the gap, the gap that still exists before his judgment is the evidence that he cares a million times more than you ever thought he did. Otherwise, he would have already cleaned house. One day he will, until that time, run to him. In light of what we have learned today, 
what do we need to ask God for?